Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for November 4th, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile, and I'm very happy to welcome you to this week's edition of our program, your source each Friday for incisive insights from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on salient appellate developments. This week's show regards oral arguments in one pending California Supreme Court insurance matter and a new appellate blog that synthesizes the state high court's rulings in over 1,600 cases. First, Kirk Jenkins of Sedgwick LLP will visit to discuss his work on the California Supreme Court Review, a new Sedgwick blog synthesizing data from a vast store of California Supreme Court rulings. The blog, begun earlier this year, looks at items of information from 16 years of high court opinions in order to parse trends and potentially predict outcomes. The blog has thus far analyzed things such as geographic and area of law origins for California Supreme Court petition grants, and affirmance and reversal rates for several of the state's appellate districts. Mr. Jenkins will discuss why quantitative analysis is useful for appellate attorneys and what's in store for his firm's new site. Then, Luke Wake, a staff attorney with the National Federation of Independent Business Small Business Legal Center, joins the program to discuss oral arguments heard this week in a case challenging the regulatory power of the state's insurance commissioner. There, As many California homeowners found themselves underinsured after wildfires raised their residences, the commissioner promulgated a regulation meant to compel insurers to provide home replacement estimates that were as accurate as possible. But, said an association of insurance company plaintiffs, the regulation and its prescriptions overstep the commissioner's statutory authority. A trial and appellate court agreed. Mr. Wake, who filed an amicus brief in support of the original plaintiffs, We'll discuss the case's competing policy considerations, likely outcome, and potential impacts. But first, let me remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available for your having listened to this program. There should be a link to a short true-false test on the bottom of the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. Click that, complete the short test that pertains to this episode, and one hour of CLE credit is yours. Let's hear now from Kirk Jenkins, a partner with Cedric LLP on his new site doing a range of quantitative analyses in the California Supreme Court on a blog for the firm called the California Supreme Court Review. Very happy to welcome to the program now, Kirk Jenkins of Sedgwick's Appellate Task Force, who's argued over 200 appellate matters in state and federal courts and whose bar admission in addition to California includes a number of federal district courts and the U.S. Supreme Court. Mr. Jenkins, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the invitation. So we're going to be talking today about a new website that you started in cooperation with Sedgwick, a quantitative analysis of, of the California Supreme Court. But it's just broad strokes. Could you tell me a bit more about what the nature of this website is? Uh, the California Supreme Court Review is our effort to apply new tools from the academic world to the study of appellate decision making. Uh, what's been called big data, the science of predictive analytics, has been growing explosively for years now. Businesses use it to predict the most likely buyers and help allocate their advertising budget. Online companies use it to predict what you want to see and are therefore most likely to interact with. Politicians use it to do everything from identifying persuadable voters to predicting who will vote and who won't. Business entities are used to having data analysis as a supplement to help guide their decision-making in a, in a ton of different areas. Well, in the California Supreme Court Review, we bring the tools of predictive analytics to studying the modern history of the California Supreme Court. 
It's based on a database which we've created that includes more than six dozen data points drawn from every one of the 1,600 decisions the court has handed down since 2000. As you say, the prevalence of big data and statistical analyses such as these are certainly growing. Was that the, the main inspiration behind the California Supreme Court review? How did it come to be? When did you get this idea? Uh, well, we began with uh, a, a similar project in Illinois about a, a year and a half ago. Um, where it started, uh, it, it occurred to me that appellate lawyers are to a considerable degree in the business of anticipating the views and inclinations of appellate judges and justices, whether it's selecting cases which should or shouldn't be brought to an appellate court, to crafting arguments in a way most likely to garner the votes of the majority of the panel. We try to understand the philosophy and the jurisprudence of the judges and the influences on the judges that would cause them to vote one way or another. Well, in 2013, it became more generally known in the appellate bar from a book called The Behavior of Federal Judges. It was written by Judge Richard Posner of the Seventh Circuit and two professors in this area. But the fact is, there's been a considerable scholarly literature for maybe 60 years, which applies empirical techniques, for the most part, sophisticated statistical analysis to exactly these questions that I'm talking about. Well, that's going to become uh, more and more well-known in the, uh, the coming years in the, uh, the legal profession. Every month you see stories in the legal press about a new company marketing legal analytics tools from Lex Machina to Ravel to just last week there was a story about Bloomberg as a, uh, a new set of uh, legal analytics tools. Well, the reason that we started uh, these now two blogs is to demonstrate these techniques in action and just how it can contribute to our being able to do our jobs better as appellate lawyers. Ordinarily, something like that would have just wound up in a law review, but part of the power of blogging and part of our philosophy of blogging is that it's, in a sense, democratized scholarship. So rather than burying this work in a law review, we allow it to play out a few, a few paragraphs at a time week after week, where people can see it, interact with it, and comment on it. You mentioned fairly early on in one of your first blog posts that keeping an eye on trends in the California Supreme Court is particularly important because of the way that the California Supreme Court behaves tends to influence other courts around the country. Could you tell me a bit more about how and why this Supreme Court is, is so influential? Well, I think ultimately the influence of really any court is driven by the quality of the bench. And the uh, California Supreme Court has been uh, has had some of the real legends of the legal world on the court for a lot of years. Uh, people like uh, uh, Chief Justices uh, Philip Gibson and Roger Traynor, uh, Justice Stanley Mosk, uh, uh, Chief Justice uh, Malcolm Lucas. When you have justices like that, you tend to get innovative analysis that people listen to around the country. And there's a long list of cases that have uh, uh, created uh, areas of the doctrine that have spread across the country. Things like uh, the Escola case, where Justice Trainer proposed strict liability, uh, Summers versus Tice, which we all learned in law school, uh, Dillon versus Legg, and uh, negligent infliction of emotional distress. Uh, Roland versus Christian, the, the, uh, the list is endless. And these things have all started in California and uh, uh, spread uh, until they're, they're general U.S. Uh, common law. 
you touched on it a bit already the philosophy undergirding your your site is essentially that you know, there's a appellate attorneys out there that are hoping to have any advantage they can when they come into a particular court so it's potentially useful for them to know how courts tend to behave based on a variety of different factors, but that philosophy bumps up a little bit against one that you also mentioned in an earlier blog post, um, formalism, which suggests the idea that such predictive analytics just aren't really applicable in courts of law, that in appeals courts, you know, one particular case comes up with its particular facts, uh, an objective appellate panel applies the law, and then that's it. So could you tell me a bit more about formalism and, and why you think it, it doesn't paint sort of the, the whole picture, why there is room for a site like yours, why predictive analytics could be applied in a judicial setting? Uh, if formalism is what you might call the traditional view of the uh, the nature of judging, the notion that the law, and I put that in quotation marks, is an external thing which judges merely find as opposed to deciding. Hardline formalism would imply that it simply doesn't matter who the judge is. The law is the law, and all judges should come to the same decision on the same set of facts. But the difficulty with formalism is though a lot of people say it. When you get right down to it, nobody really believes it. Because if formalism were a completely adequate explanation of judging, nobody would care who gets appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court or who Governor Brown appoints to the California Supreme Court. It wouldn't matter who the judges were because the law is law. Or consider a hypothetical for the individual practitioners listening. Say you're handling two ca- corporate cases or cases for corporate defendants at the same time, and you learn that you're being argued one week apart. One is before a panel of three judges appointed by Pre- President Obama, and one before a panel of three judges appointed by President George W. Bush. Now, a strict formalist would have to say that that news has no impact whatsoever. But in fact, I'd venture to guess that news would interest absolutely any appellate lawyer. Now, if formalism were a completely adequate explanation of the way appellate uh, courts make their decisions, academic studies would have concluded that it doesn't matter who appointed the judge. It doesn't matter whether the appellate panel is diverse racially or by gender or how it's mixed, three Democrats, two Democrats to one Republican, or what exactly. But the fact is, there's 60 years worth of rigorous academic studies have, con- have concluded that that's just wrong. All that stuff absolutely matters. The principal competing theory to formalism is something called attitudinalism, which was pioneered by Professors Harold Spaeth and Jeffrey Siegel. Uh, Attitudinalists argue that judges decide cases in line with their political views, whether that's liberal or conservative. A third theory has been pioneered by Judge Richard Posner of the Seventh Circuit, who's another one of the giants of this area of uh, scholarship, and he calls it realism. He argues that a lot of things influence judicial decision-making beyond just the political philosophy. Uh, it's true, and most people uh, concede that some cases can really only be decided one way, but for the rest of them, he says, there are all kinds of influences. There's the judge's philosophy. There's a natural aversion to dissenting from your colleagues that you're working with in close quarters. And in some courts, the influence of auditioning for higher courts and a host of other things. Both attitudinalism and realism have sparked a ton of empirical and statistical work over the last uh, uh, several years. Touching on the the parameters of your site, when you began this project, you're obviously confronted with a a pretty daunting store of information. Um, (laughs) How did did you go about determining what um, 
I guess first would be the the period of time that you would analyze, what years of California Supreme Court decisions you would look at, and then how did you determine what data points you would track? I know you, you keep track of things like the number of days between oral argument and, and decisions and, and things like amicus briefs filed on either side. Uh, how, how, how did you go about just figuring out what, what you wanted to track, and were there any particular data points that you find particularly interesting or useful? Well, we decided to begin in the year 2000 because fundamentally this is a tool to inform our appellate practice. It's not really an academic exercise. And at a certain point, when you go far enough back, it becomes more of uh, uh, his- historical interest than uh, something that informs the uh, analysis of the way the court acts today. Uh, if you start in 2000, that encompasses the entire career of five of the current seven justices. Uh, as for the data points, the Supreme Court database that I mentioned a, minute, a moment ago influenced our work because we were interested in seeing how the courts we were studying were similar to and different from the United States Supreme Court. And another major goal was uh, there's a lot of conventional wisdom in the appellate bar that you hear and various controversies about this issue and that. And uh, uh, we all, we picked a lot of uh, variables exclusively to uh, specifically to investigate uh, those kind of controversies. For, for example, everybody talks about how long cases take at the California Supreme Court. So we were interested in tracking lag times. Uh, everything, everyone says that to get review, you need a published decision with a dissent below. So we tracked that. But the bottom line is we're tracking nearly everything. We follow, we extract 82 different data points from every single one of the court's cases. So a lot of information, it sounds like. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, one in particular area of categorization I'd be curious to ask you about, I know you mentioned in the blog that you also have scored California Supreme and appellate opinions uh, on a binary split of conservative or liberal. Um, how did you go about doing that, especially considering it seems like some judicial opinions might not necessarily necessarily lend themselves to, to being graded on um, such a, a binary dichotomy? And how do you think that sort of data point would, would be useful for your site? Well, it's certainly true that uh, some cases are more challenging than others to uh, uh, put on a a binary division between uh, conservative and liberal. Uh, Nonetheless, that kind of coding is pretty much universal in uh, uh, this area of scholarship. And I think the reason is to fully understand the court, you need to have a sense both of what kind of decisions they're reviewing and what kind of decisions they're producing. Well, we're primarily interested in the uh, the battle between plaintiffs versus defendants. So our basic rule of thumb in doing this coding was that a vote for the defendants is coded as conservative and a vote for the plaintiffs is coded as liberal. And in cases where a party who's usually a defendant is a plaintiff in a particular case, like a declaratory judgment action, uh, we reverse that rule just to maintain the consistent coding. Uh, one example of the kinds of issues that in, that enables us to investigate is assume that, for example, the court, uh, uh, we find that the court had heard a constant level of tort cases since 2010. Well, that's a start, but what kind of tort cases? Are they accepting plaintiff's wins or defense wins from the Court of Appeal and even mix of both, uh, lopsidedly one or the other? 
Is there a significant difference between the reversal rates for plaintiff's wins or defense wins, and how has that changed over time? When you can do that kind of analysis, that's told you something even more interesting about the court. And we can do that kind of analysis for pretty much any any issue on the civil or criminal side that the court hears. I'd like to get in more specifically to some of those analyses. Your, your blog has been publishing for a few months now. Um, one of the first statistical inquiries you undertook was figuring out the, the sources of appellate jurisdiction in the California Supreme Court. Could, t- could you tell me a bit more about what you were looking at there? Basically, the uh, uh, the variable was um, uh, what was the uh, jurisdictional basis for the uh, the case coming up. What we were actually after was, um, well, in California, all appellate lawyers are very experienced in pursuing uh, writ petitions. But one of the biggest barriers to a writ petition is always the issue of uh, the appellate court is asking itself, do we really have to intervene here? Will this case settle? Will the petitioner eventually win? Is the factual record sufficiently developed for us to make a good decision? And at the Supreme Court level, you often hear talk about whether a case is a good vehicle for an issue. That's the, the term of art. So I was just interested in, uh, to begin with in how big a fraction of the court's docket writ petitions were. And the answer is fairly big. Uh, the court typically hears between 45 and 55% of its docket from final judgments. But in the typical year, traditional writs account for anywhere from 15 to 25%. Uh, administrative mandate, cases from the administrative agencies, is another big factor that you don't see in other states that we picked up through tracking this variable. And another interesting uh, feature that sets the uh, the court apart from other state Supreme Courts is the uh, California Supreme Court frequently hears certified questions from the Ninth Circuit, often one to three a year. Uh, that was a little bit of a surprise. Uh, for example, in the Illinois Supreme Court, where we started this project, uh, certified questions are vastly less common than that. Another area that you looked at was geographic sources, appellate cases coming up to the California Supreme Court. So just where cases physically came from different appellate districts across the state. Um, what uh, what did you find interesting about that analysis? And what did you think it could be useful to see you know, where these cases are coming from? Well, I think you follow that for the same reason you track the, uh, the courts of appeals. Uh, essentially, it's another form of tracking reversal rates. One question you always get when you get a grant of review is how often has the court heard cases from this trial court? Uh, have they ever heard a case from this trial judge? And trial judge is, is one of the variables that we track. Can you infer anything about the court's view of this trial judge? Now, ordinarily, you'd expect the docket to more or less track the distribution of the state's population. And anywhere it diverges from that significantly, either underrepresenting or overrepresenting, that's potentially telling you something about the court's work. Mm-hmm. Now, we found that Los Angeles County has historically been somewhat overrepresented on the court's docket. Uh, it had 26.4% of the state's population in 2010. But since uh, the year 2000, it's produced 35.7% of the civil docket, 29% of the criminal docket, and 32% of the death penalty docket. So L.A. is overrepresented. But the interesting thing is most of the big counties are at least somewhat underrepresented on the civil docket if you're assuming that their share of the cases should be similar to their share of the population. San Diego, Orange, Riverside, San Bernardino, and uh, Alameda counties 
are all at least somewhat underrepresented in terms of their share of the civil side. Yeah, that, that theme of Los Angeles being overrepresented seems to common in context outside of the legal world. Interesting to see it as also manifested <laughs> here as well. I know you also undertook a, an analysis of the, the areas of law that the California Supreme Court takes a look at. So in the civil context, if they look at torts or breach of contract cases, criminal law, things like death penalty, criminal procedure, things like that. Um, right. What were your, the most interesting conclusions from that? inquiry, what uh, what sorts of areas of law has the Supreme Court been looking at more so lately? Does that sort of thing change over time? You obviously are looking at 16 years worth of opinions. Well, I think the content of appellate dockets can tell you a lot about a society. Uh, a famous judge once said that every state Supreme Court completely restates the entirety of the law of the jurisdiction every 20 years. Uh, there was an era when state Supreme Court dockets were dominated by property law and domestic relations. Uh, today, those two areas are comparatively unimportant. Um, the reason that it's important for us to uh, tra track something like that is if you're bringing up a case in an area of law that the court hadn't visited in a while, that's one indication that you might have a somewhat better chance of a grant. On the other hand, if an area declines and stays down year after year, that may suggest that the court simply isn't interested in that subject at this point. Well, tort always dominates the civil docket, but there are several surprises in the uh, the data. The court has been especially active in employment law in recent years. There have even been years uh, uh, since 2010 where employment was the biggest single subject on the uh, the civil docket, and that's really unusual uh, because of the regulatory framework in California. Government and administrative law is a far more important subject than it is in other states. In 2015, for example, uh, it was the most common subject on the civil docket. You mentioned this earlier in our, our conversation that uh, traditional wisdom is to get a, a petition granted before the California Supreme Court. You need to have an opinion below in the, the intermediate appellate court that included a dissent. You analyzed that question as well. Um, what were your conclusions there? Uh, yeah, as you say, there uh, you frequently hear in the appellate bar, uh, unless you've got a dissent below, it's a complete waste of money to petition for uh, a review. But the fact is, that's a vast overstatement, is what we uh, concluded. Uh, it's not at all uncommon for 75% of the court's non-unanimous decisions to come in cases which were unanimous below. Uh, among unanimous decisions, it's not uncommon for 80% or more of the court's cases to be unanimous below. So, in fact, the vast majority of the court's docket is um, uh, cases that there was no dissent below. One thing that dissent has predicted fairly well, though, is dissent at the Supreme Court. Uh, towards the first part of the, uh, this decade, 2010 to 2013, uh, the court was typically running 35 to 45 percent of its non-unanimous decisions were cases that there were dissents below. Now, that's dipped fairly sharply uh, uh, recently, and dissents below have become uh, less important part of the docket than they have uh, uh, in quite some time. Uh, in 2013, only 8% of the uh, unanimous decisions had dissents below, and it was only 13.3% in 2014 and just under 4 in 2015. So for all the people who uh, 
uh, have ha- have insisted that a dissent is uh, essential. Uh, there are uh, the court goes years at a time when uh, they hear relatively few civil cases that there was a, a dissent below. It must be somewhat interesting and perhaps gratifying if you're undertaking this project if say you find statistical support that that contravenes traditional wisdom. You know, if you only found things that sort of supported what people already thought, then perhaps you think, well, maybe this isn't serving a, a great utility. But it must be interesting when, as it turns out, you can point to your statistics and say, you know, hey, this is actually different than folks generally seem to think. Uh, there are a number of issues where uh, you have those sorts of uh, uh, conclusions. There are a lot of uh, theories, for example, that uh, float around about oral argument. Uh, some people insist that oral argument indicates nothing about the way the court is going. Uh, others say, well, the judges are really talking to each other. They're playing devil's advocate, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, we are in the early stages of our study of the California Supreme Court on oral argument, but there's a good bit of scholarship around about uh, uh, oral argument, including a, a huge body of work we've done in Illinois uh, that has proven that that's absolutely not true, that uh, the oral argument is a, uh, if you're listening, is a very clear indication of the direction that the uh, the court is going. The judges are not playing uh, devil's advocate, and uh, when they indicate that they have a question about an area or a problem with an area, uh, there's a fairly good chance, if you don't give a satisfactory answer, that you're going to see that in the opinion. Uh, the conclusion of the scholarship in that area is that uh, uh, the chances of your winning the case drop precipitously as you get more questions than the other side. It's as simple as that. And it's been proven over the course of hundreds and hundreds of oral arguments. Another inquiry that you guys have undertaken looks at the frequency with which the California Supreme Court will have close votes or or votes that are either unanimous or have only one dissent. And you did a, a very comprehensive analysis of, of those sorts of different votes and how they occur in, in different areas of law or how often they occur in different areas of law. What are your findings from from that inquiry? Well, you, you a lot of places you see the uh, the unanimity rate for a court. Say sixty uh, percent of the court's uh, decisions are unanimous, which would be a fairly typical year at the uh, California Supreme Court. But it occurred to us that that means something very different. If that other forty percent are four to three decisions, or of the forty percent are six to one decisions. Uh, plus, it's helpful for studying something that uh, we're interested in, and a lot of the scholars in this area have done a lot of work on, uh, called the panel effect. Um, one of the implications of formalism is that it won't matter a bit to a judge's voting patterns who he or she is sitting with on a panel. Right. But the fact is, there's perhaps 60 years of empirical work from the academic world proving that, in fact, it matters a lot. And there's been a ton of research about other forms of group decision making that comes out with the exact same result. Uh, The uh, party split on the court has uh, recently moved from six Republicans and one Democrat to uh, uh, four to three uh, in favor of the Republican side. And the, the expectation is that that doesn't just mean replacing two conservative votes with more liberal ones. If we wind up finding a panel effect in the uh, uh, the court's work, we would expect the conservative judges 
to justices to begin voting uh, in a more liberal way uh, too, and that's one of the reasons that we uh, the, that we follow this statistic. Um, as far as what we're finding, uh, the uh, uh, data from 2008 or so uh, to the present uh, shows considerably less dissent on the civil side than we were seeing from about 2000 to 2007. Uh, for example, in the year 2000, um, only 49% of the court's civil decisions were unanimous. That's extraordinary given the uh, uh, emphasis that appellate courts put on unanimity. Uh, today, unanimity tends to be anywhere from 75 to 85%. Uh, four to three cases uh, have, have comprised as much as 11.9% uh, of the docket in, for example, 2010. But it's definitely been dropping in the years since then. Uh, six to one cases uh, were nearly 20% of the civil docket in 2011 and nearly that in 2012. But that seems to be dropping, too. Uh, we'll see what the data is for, for 2016. Uh, but recently, the court has uh, had um, significantly less uh, uh, disagreement than uh, uh, it has in the uh, the previous years. Um, one of the interesting subjects that has spawned a lot of the disagreement on the court is arbitration. Uh, arbitration uh, only amounts to 4.7% of the civil docket, but since 2010, it's been 21.4% of the total non-unanimous decisions. Uh, tort the court is uh, the court is fairly uh, fairly much in line with what you'd expect on, but another of the surprises was constitutional law is not really a subject that tends to divide the court. It's uh, just short of 11 percent of the docket, but uh, a little less than five percent of the uh, divided decisions. So I'd be curious to know in what particular ways an appellate attorney would go about applying that that knowledge that you provided with that statistical analysis. So if you have a case, say, that tends to, to split the court, you might think that you have a better chance for a petition review. What, what do things like increased unanimity mean for uh, appellate attorneys? Well, the, uh, the task in um, uh, appellate lawyering is always to uh, assem assemble a majority of the, uh, the court and uh, anything that you can uh, divine from the court's history about uh, both the inclinations of the individual justices and the, uh, uh, the factors that would cause the, uh, uh, the justices to uh, perhaps vote differently than you might expect uh, is, is helpful to uh, uh, helping you uh, craft your argument. You, you want to bring the issues to the court that the court most cares about and uh, that are in line with the way the court makes decisions. Uh, the more quantitative data that you have about the, uh, the court's recent history, uh, and there are, it's 1,600 decisions, so there's a lot of it. Uh, the more you know about how to uh, assemble that kind of uh, argument, because uh, it, it's the basis of the common law that uh, uh, the result is supposed to be determined by what's gone before. You're, you're presently in, in the midst of a, an analysis of different appellate districts' affirmance and, and reversal rates, how they fare when their, their cases are called up on appeal before the California Supreme Court. Can you tell me a bit about this this analysis and any particular findings that you've You've, you've found so so far about different appellate districts and their success rates. 
Well, the first thing you see in the data for the uh, reversal rate is that uh, courts don't really tend to go on long-term losing streaks. Uh, there, There is no court in California that the uh, California Supreme Court has been routinely reversing for a large part of the 16 years that we uh, have date on. Um, lots of the courts have had periods where they'll get pretty bang, bang about five years but then you see them reel off a string of affirmances. Uh, on the civil side, uh, most of the divisions in the first district have had reversal rates at around the statewide average for most of the period we've looked at. Uh, divisions two and eight of the second district and division two of the fourth uh, stick out as doing quite well on the civil side. Uh, divisions one, four, five, and six of the second district have had periods where they've been getting reversed more often, uh, as has the third district. Over on the criminal side, Division Three of the first district and Divisions Four and Five of the second have done quite well for the most part. And Division Two of the first, six of the second, and one of the fourth have done perhaps a little bit less well over time. Of course, all this comes with a caveat, which I've written about on the uh, uh, the blog. Uh, everyone talks about reversal rates of the uh, intermediate appellate courts. But, of course, everyone also knows that the court denies the overwhelming majority of petitions for review. So one could argue that the if you calculate the number of cases that a petition is filed, the petition is granted, and the court ultimately hears it on the merits and reverses, in a sense, the reversal rate for all of these courts is very, very small. Of all these various analyses that you've undertaken so far, have you found any particularly interesting or perhaps surprising at all? What are some of the, the most important things that you've divined through through your uh, work on the blog so far? Well, it, it, uh, it it's interesting to be looking at the California Supreme Court after having spent a significant amount of time with the Illinois Supreme Court, because the California Supreme Court is really, in a lot of ways, more like the United States Supreme Court than it is other state Supreme Courts. Uh, one example is the number of amicus briefs that the court accepts. Uh, the court averages on the civil side between four and five amicus briefs for every single case. Um, the length of their opinions is another example. Uh, the number of opinions that gets filed is another example where they're more similar to uh, the US Supreme Court than to other state Supreme Courts. And also, as I mentioned earlier, the importance of administrative law. Um, I was surprised by the data we discussed on how comparatively often the court hears unanimous decisions from the Court of Appeal. Before we'd gotten into this analysis, I'd been hearing that for years, that if uh, uh, you don't have a dissent at the Court of Appeal, then it's pretty much over as far as getting Supreme Court review. Uh, another interesting uh, uh, thing that we've uh, uncovered, the um, uh, lag time between the grant of review and oral argument. It turns out that since 2010, the that lag time has averaged 74 days longer when the court affirms. And that was really a surprise. Uh, can candidly, I still haven't come up with, any, with an explanation for that result, but there is a distinct difference in the average lag time uh, between grant review and oral argument 
when the court ultimately affirms as opposed to when the court ultimately reverses. But uh, this work is always producing interesting insights into the court's processes. Maybe could you tell me a bit about the feedback that you've gotten so far on the site? It's been up for a few months now. Have folks generally been been positive about your product? Uh, are there any maybe formalists out there that question whether there's <laughs> u- utility to this predictive analysis? And is there a split of uh, reaction between judges, uh, jurists, and, and, and attorneys to judges potentially feel like you might be trying to, to peek behind their cards a little bit and, and get a, a better sense of their <laughs> philosophies than, than they would like attorneys to have? <laughs> well, I think the uh, uh, the general reaction among uh, uh, judges, um, uh, well, two things. Anything that enables uh, lawyers to uh, more sharply focus their uh, arguments on what the judges actually care about and the way that appellate decision-making actually happens uh, is making the judge's job easier. Um, there's any number of examples of appellate uh, uh, judges saying that uh, they breathe a sigh of relief when they see an experienced appellate lawyer uh, come up in a case because they know that that lawyer is going to give them what they need to do their job. Uh, and I think that that applies here, too, in, in addition to the fact that one of the real giants of this research uh, that's been doing this for the last several years is a judge himself, which makes it a little bit harder to uh, uh, critique it. Uh, the feedback has been really positive. Um, uh, of course, there's some resistance uh, telling a lawyer that uh, sophisticated mathematics are now going to be an important tool in the arsenal. Um, can come as a bit of a shock to most folks. But I think uh, uh, most people are seeing pretty quickly uh, with the the spread of data analytics in our industry just how powerful this approach can be for understanding and predicting the court's decision-making. Yeah, I'm sure there's more than a handful of attorneys that uh, got into the practice a lot because they wanted to get away from uh, from, from math and, and science. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, Seems like it's found them. Maybe one last one here looking forward. Um, do you have any future analyses that you're particularly excited for? Or any uh, thoughts on uh, growing the blog in different directions uh, in the future? Uh, we're going to take a close look at the court's experience with amicus briefs, since that's one of the, uh, the, the real differences between the California Supreme Court and other state Supreme Courts, and try to quantify exactly what effect they have on the court's decision-making. Um, over the next few months, we're going to get to uh, analyzing individual justices' records, uh, who writes the most majorities, concurrences, and dissents, and the longest and the shortest ones. Uh, we'll look at voting records in detail, who's voting together, and whether those trends hold across many subjects and all that. Uh, in about six months, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be turning our attention to analyzing the court's oral argument. Um, Finally, finally, in the longer term, uh, we'll be turning to regression modeling of the court's decision making. And uh, uh, we've also been thinking uh, about the possible applications of game theory to uh, understanding appellate decision making. And also, there's a lot of potential in text analytics uh, for uh, new insights about appellate decision making. So we'll stay busy. I'm sure many appellate attorneys will be eager to, to see the results of your, your future analyses as they, as they come out. For now, Mr. Kirk Jenkins of Sedgwick and creator of the California Supreme Court Review, thanks very much for being on the podcast.
Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. One more time, that was Kirk Jenkins, a partner with Cedric LLP. We'll move now to my talk with Luke Wake of the NFIB, Small Business Law Center, on the recent California Supreme Court arguments in a case with wide repercussions in the area of insurance law and administrative law. We're happy to welcome now Luke Wake, a staff attorney with the National Federation of Independent Businesses Small Business Legal Center, whose particular expertise spans environmental, land use, and constitutional law, and who filed an amicus brief in support of the original plaintiffs in this action. Mr. Wake, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Dan. So we're talking about the case before the California Supreme Court, Association of California Insurance Companies versus Dave Jones, the commissioner of the Insurance Commission. The case here seems to revolve around a particular regulation that was promulgated by the commissioner in 2010 as a result of some complaints from homeowners that had felt their insurance coverages were not um, adequate after natural disasters, namely wildfires, destroyed their homes. Could you tell me a bit about the background behind this regulation that was challenged? Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you just just alluded to, you know, the, the the sort of the impetus for this regulation that the insurance commissioner promulgated was this, you know, unfortunate um, series of news stories that occurred, I believe, in Southern California involving wildfires, and of course. Here in California, we, we worry about wildfires and earthquakes, and um, you know that's definitely you know something you have to be concerned about if, if you're a homeowner and, and wanting to have you know the proper insurance uh, if necessary, if something like that were to happen to to rebuild. And the the problem that frankly I'm not sure there were some questions in the in the record as to how pervasive this issue really was, but apparently the insurance commissioner received some complaints that a few people who had been affected by fires in in in, in recent years had not uh, had adequate insurance coverage and and the commissioner determined that this was in part because the the insurance providers had not properly estimated all of the costs that would be associated with reconstruction including for example the costs and labor associated with removing debris and that sort of thing and so as a result the commissioner promulgated regulations which the California Insurance Association uh, sued over and challenged. Um, the regulations required insurance providers to dictate dictated the form in which they were to calculate insurance uh, to be compliant with, with state law and um, specifically deemed anyone who conveyed an, an insurance quote to someone without um, going through the specific form and it had to be in writing and there was record keeping requirements and and it dictated specifically the sort of the formula for how the insurance agent should um, go about calculating all of the various things that may go into um, into a situation like what we've been discussing, a home destroyed in a fire, specifically the cost for moving debris and all that. But the, the insurance association um, ultimately challenged this. And um, and, and the main reason for that challenge was that they didn't think that the insurance commissioner had the authority under the, the governing statute to define specifically the formula and the, the format for, for how they should go about giving these quotes. And, and, and also, they made a big fuss about the fact that, and, and, and I think maybe rightfully so, the, the fact that the insurance provider could convey entirely accurate information but because they didn't go through uh, the specific format um, that, that the insurance commissioner dictated and because they didn't necessarily, or maybe because they don't, you know, 
do it in writing, if they said everything orally and said everything truthfully, uh, it would still be considered unfair and deceptive, or if they didn't you know, comply with those record-keeping requirements. And so they said, well, this can't really be considered an unfair or deceptive statement or communication because, you know, everything would be accurate. And and that's kind of the nature of the issue. Obviously, the, the insurance commissioner argues in defense that he's got broad power to define unfair um, and deceptive practices in the insurance industry, and, and, to, and that's how, on the basis on which he justifies the rule. The, the authority asserted by the commissioner in, in the filings and challenged by the plaintiffs here seems like it would spring from the, uh, the Unfair Insurance Practices Act, the statute pertaining to this, this context. Could you tell me a, a bit more about that act and why, I suppose, in, in the view of the, the plaintiffs here, it, it does not grant the authority the commissioner is citing as the basis for this regulation? Well, of course, the Uniform Insurance Practices Act governs um, insurance practices here in California, and it, it specifies in, in, in detail a number of practices that are deemed unfair and deceptive um, by the legislature, and, and therefore the legislature explicitly prohibited those practices. Um, so, uh, in general, the the act states that um, you know unfair and deceptive practices as defined in Section 7903 of the Uniform Insurance Practices Act are, are illegal and, and that the, the insurance commissioner has authority to initiate enforcement proceedings against anyone engaged in the insurance industry who does specific things uh, listed by the legislature that would be deemed explicitly in the statute to be in violation uh, of, of this prohibition on unfair and deceptive practices. For example, um, knowingly communicating a quote that is no knowingly false. That would be one of the things that is explicitly prohibited in the legislature. It's, it's, and it's not a, um, not a particularly short list. I mean, it, it seems to be somewhat comprehensive. And, and so the legislature goes through and, and, and section 7903 and, or 0.3 and identifies this list. But um, nowhere in that list is there any mention of anything dictating the uh, forms in which communications need to be made, um, and, and nothing is is dictating uh, you know any sort of record keeping requirements or anything like this. And so the the insurance industry's position is essentially that well, if the legislature has gone through the process and through the specificity of of defining specific things that it thinks to be unfair. Um, and, and deceptive, that that necessarily leads to an inference that uh, things that it did not include on that list uh, are not deemed unfair and deceptive. And that if you want to add to that list, that's fine, but you've got to go through the legislature to, to actually do that. And so when the, when the insurance commissioner promulgated regulation deeming something new to be an unfair deceptive practice that wasn't on that list, they said, well, you're essentially rewriting the statute. You're, you're essentially adding in text. And that, of course, is not within the power of the agency unless um, they, they can point to some other independent uh, source of authority within a statute. And in fact, the commissioner in this instance does cite to Section 790.10, which states, you know, in very broad terms that the commissioner, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but shall promulgate reasonable rules and regulations as are necessary to administer the article. And that, that's very general language uh, from which the the, the com commissioner argues that, that he has authority basically to um, promulgate regulations however you know, he seems fit to advance, you know, consumer welfare here. And that's, you know, and that's generally the argument that the commissioner relies upon. Uh, but, but as the Insurance Association points out, the problem with that is that 
for one, you cannot generally assume a power from a from a general provision where there's more specific provisions uh, speaking to the issue. I mean, and a similar issue comes up in, in contractual interpretation, for example. If you have a, a an ambiguous general provision, but you have other more specific provisions in the contract, um, generally speaking, the, the more specific provisions are going to govern because the, the assumption is if the legislature or the contract writer has spoken specifically to something, um, then then it doesn't make sense to interpret the general provision as, as, as doing exactly the same thing. And in this situation, if the association argues anyways, if um, you were to give the construction that the, that the commissioner is arguing for this, this broad uh, grant of conferral to administer the article, and in a way that would allow them to promulgate regulations that add to the list that the legislature made for unfair and deceptive practices, well, that would essentially be uh, an open-ended authority that would would obviate um, another provision of the statute through which the, the the legislature explicitly created a procedure that the commissioner could go through if he wanted uh, to um, address a novel issue that maybe the legislature didn't didn't specifically define. And so, again, in, under Section 790.03, the legislature specifically defines these unfair business practices. But then in Section 790.06, the, the legislature said, well, if, if there's a situation that comes up where the commissioner wants to uh, address something that he thinks is an unfair business practice, but it's not explicitly defined in Section 7903, um, he can institute proceedings and ultimately go to court and, and, and get a decision from, from a judge at that point that, that the practice in question is can be deemed unfair and deceptive under the statute. And so the fact that the legislature created that procedure as, as sort of um, an, an alternative way to uh, you know address something that is novel, but that hasn't hasn't been specifically addressed in, in this, the listed um, unfair and deceptive practices um, leads to a, a strong inference anyways. And the Court of Appeals thought so. This was a, a significant part of why the Court of Appeals agreed with the California Insurance Association uh, in, in actually invalidating the regulation in question here, because in the, in the view of the, the, the Court of Appeal and, and, and the Superior Court as well, um, the, the legislature was explicit in, 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 in the way they, they set this, the statute out. And going back to canons of construction, um, they, they, really, they really emphasize that you've got to give full effect to all the, all the provisions of the statute and that it doesn't necessarily make sense to accept the, the, the suggestion of broad gap-filling authority that the commissioner wants here. Because, for example, under the canon of expressio unis est excluio alters, <laughs> which I, I, I've just butchered it at my Latin, uh, <laughs> but the, um, the, the point being if the legislature is explicitly um, you know, set out a list and, and has, has omitted something, it doesn't, as a rational matter, make sense to assume that they also included to, meant to include other things. I mean, the, the, the refusal to include something is significant, as is the, the presumption that every portion of the statute should be given effect. And if you're going to accept, again, the, the, the legislature's, I mean, the commissioner's view on this, um, that would render, you know, that would render surplusage other portions of the of the statute. I mean, the commissioner would never ever need to resort to the the, the procedures under Section 790.06 to initiate uh, procedures to address a novel issue uh, that they, that they say might might qualify because well they could just initiate rulemaking and 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 that would be the end of the story. So the, again, the Court of Appeals really insisted on um, giving a critical analysis to the statutory structure and, and, and to determine for itself 
whether the challenge regulation can be justified within the statutory scheme or, or whether the agency's position, you know, stood for itself. It, the commissioner obviously relies on this gap filling authority, but he's essentially saying you should defer to my interpretation of, of my, my own power, which is in conflict with um, a general principle of administrative law here in California that the agencies do not get deference on questions of their own jurisdiction. And so uh, to the extent that the commissioner or any agency is, is you know, asserting a, a too free-wielding theory of, a, of gap-filling authority, they are uh, rubbing up in, in conflict with, with that, with that sure. first principle. As you say, and as the Court of Appeals stresses, there's essentially three sections of the statute that that are important here. One has a list of unfair practices set out by the legislature, that 790.03. And on that list, there is not included this particular practice um, that the regulation tries to to change or to dictate. Um, And then additionally, there's that section where the commissioner can add additional unfair practices that are are novel that come up um, over the course of time. But he did not use that one. He used um, 790.1, which is sort of more of a general catch-all provision. But um, as you exactly. say, using, and yeah. if he has general rulemaking authority under uh, under 790.10, there would be no need to ever utilize the provision that the legislature clearly set out to address these novel issues. So conclusion there on the statutory construction point, the, the Court of Appeals also noted that some legal precedent cited by the, uh, the commissioner was not exactly on point, in particular a case of Ford Dealers Association versus the Department of Motor Vehicles, um, which seemed to stand for the proposition that an agency can promulgate regulations defining a sort of specific type of misleading statement within the context of their particular purview. Why is that case not on point in the opinion of the Court of Appeals? Well, uh, first of all, they're 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 different statutory. Um, you know, it's a similar statute. In, I mean, in in some regard, because uh, you know we're both dealing with you know regulation of a certain form of business, and 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 actually, in so far as they're both dealing with you know alleged deceptive or unfair practices, but the the statutory scheme is is, is itself different. So you're dealing with different statutory conferrals of of authority. And, 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 and of course, that's all relevant because going back to first principles, you've got to look at the, what the text actually says. And so, um, you know, Ford Dealers Association was definitely the, the best authority for the, for the commissioner to, to invoke broad gap filling authority to interpret the statute, to authorize him to uh, promulgate this regulation or to, you know, and, and to further define unfair and deceptive insurance practices as he might see fit. But, um, you know, again, we're dealing with separate, a separate statute and, and, and the Court of Appeals certainly thought that significant. And I think um, it was especially significant in, in, in the Court of Appeals view that, that you know, this statute at hand was was unique from the one presented in Ford Dealers Association because there was not the same um, you know explicit mechanism for, for the commissioner or for the agency to further delineate um, other unfair or, or deceptive practices through this uh, this procedure uh, outside of the rulemaking process, um, and so it, it, it certainly is different in that regard. I would add that you know our our, our thinking on this was as, as we approached was that gap filling authority should exist, but only in cases where the court can conclude that the agency is drawing within the statutory lines, uh, which I think requires a, 
a reviewing court to decide you know what is the best interpretation here uh, in consideration of all of the canons of construction. You can't throw the canons of construction out out the window. So. Um, and, 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 and you've got to be careful because if you, if you really entertain the, the, the logic, at least this is our thinking, uh, representing you know, small business owners who are dealing with these sort of regulatory issues all the time, there's, there's the concern that if you do uh, entertain this you know, broad gap-filling authority uh, theory that, that, that they're trying to tease out of Ford Association, um, you essentially give the agency carte blanche authority to regulate in, in any way it deems necessary and proper. And, and that would seem to push up not only against some of the other uh, principles of administrative law I've talked about, but also just the, the, the very concept of, of the non-delegation doctrine being sort of a backstop against an agency making up, you know, essential fundamental decisions on policy matters. Um, of course, I'm not suggesting that there's necessarily a non-delegation issue here, but um, when employed with the canons of construction, the doctrine may have some impact and analysis in term, in, insofar as it requires uh, a, a construction of a statute, that a rational construction of a statute that uh, that does cabin and, and in some way meaningfully, meaningfully limit the agency's authority. So that's at least the way the, the industry groups, both um, as plaintiffs and, appell- and appellees here and, and as amicus, have, have thought about this issue. That sort of leads me to the next question I had is what the, the most important issues are in this case and what motivated you to file an amicus brief. Is it sort of the idea that you know, you want to ensure that statutes are given their full effect and that powers are separated as constitutionally intended? What uh, what in this case motivated you to, to file your, your brief? Well, I should be clear that, you know, the National Federation of Independent Business, representing you know, 23,000 small business owners here in California, does not take a position one way or the next on the, um, the substance of, of the rule. We really didn't care about the substance of the rule. In fact, you know, it's really what the commissioner was trying to do here in some way makes sense. But I, our position was that it, it, that should be done by the legislature if it's going to happen. And that's not to endorse the regulation one way or the next is just to say that these sort of policy issues are better you know, sorted out by the legislature. But what we are concerned about, getting again going back to first principles, is is, is this this idea that um, that the legislature ultimately should be the one making the law. And we see time and again, and small business owners here in California are, are especially um, uh, frustrated when I talk to them because they're just swimming and swimming in regulation. And, you know, it's one thing where the legislature has clearly you know, said, you know, this is the standard and the the agency is, is enforcing that standard with, you know, regulations that aren't adding to the statute. But what we're, we're really concerned about is, I mean, it's, it, we already live in a, in a state with enough regulation. And if you, you construe um, statutes with you know, very general um, statutory charges to, you know, administer an act or to implement an act as, as giving, you know, free-wielding authority for the agency to um, regulate how it thinks best, well, then we really are in a situation where we have, um, you know, bureaucrats making law who are unaccountable to the people. And and so there's, there's you know, this theoretical aspect to it, but it's, it, it matters in a practical sense because it comes up time and again in, in, in the regulatory controversies that we see small business owners um, ensnared in. And I'll, and I'll give you a very concrete example. Um, you, you probably have heard about, I mean, this um, auction emission regulation lawsuit with Cal Chamber and the Morningstar Company um, suing the Air Resources Board 
AB 32 authorized um, you know, cap and trade system if, if the Air, Air Resource Board wanted to do that um, as a means of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And so when, when, they, when they set out to um, establish the cap and trade system, there's two ways they could have done that. They could have, they have to distribute a set an allocation of uh, emission credits to biz- businesses that are actually emitting CO2. And then they would re- they reduce those those allocations over time, and and so uh, through this process, businesses are forced to uh, reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. But there, there's two ways they could do it. They can either freely allocate them, you know, um, and and through a, through a lottery system or something like that, or they can auction them off and make a lot of money for the state in the process. But they had no explicit statutory authorization to do that. And in fact, and in doing that, doing it that way, they significantly, radically uh, raised the costs of businesses to be compliant with this system because they have to now pay a lot of money to get those emission uh, credits, which could otherwise be allocated for free. And so there was two ways, you know, in this that situation that the, the, the Air Resources Board could interpret their statutory authority. And they chose to interpret from silence um, authority to, you know, auction off these emission credits. And, and in a manner that imposes you know, very significant um, added costs for the regulated community. Well, we were, were very concerned about that. And I actually think that this, this specific case um, might have an impact, uh, at least with regard to these, this ultra-virus issue that's been raised in, in that litigation. But it's not just that. It, it, it's, it's, it comes up, as I said, time and again, all sorts of regulatory regimes where, where there's questions about the agency's authority. And we really want to see courts actually critically examine the statute and apply in a rational uh, way the canons of construction to, to think well, logically, rationally, what did the legislature actually want here instead of just you know, throwing their hands up and saying, well, I'm going to defer to the agency because then, then you get you know, an administrative state run amok and I don't think any accountability to the people of California. A frequent pushback on that point, I think that would be raised by, for example, the attorneys here representing the insurance commissioner would be that, you know, in certain contexts, a state legislator makes a law, but then particular agencies have more specialized knowledge in certain areas. So it's efficient or prudent to defer to them in in certain areas. Problems might come up that need to be addressed and that might require some specialized knowledge on the part of folks that work in that industry. What um, is Mm -hmm. your response to to a point like that? Well, I think it's a it's a it's a fair point, but one would say I would say that you know however ex, however much expertise that an agency might have on technical or policy issues, uh, I I don't think that they have any institutional advantage over the courts themselves in resolving questions over the jurisdictional power of the agency. I mean, that is by by nature the judicial function is to say what the law is, and so. Um, and, and, and so far as the question is, you know, should we defer to an agency over the scope of its, its powers um, because the agency has special expertise here? Um, I would be concerned about that. One, because, as I said a second ago, the courts actually are, are, I think, best suited to say what the law is. But, but two, there, there's a real risk of, you know, agency self-regardizement of their power. That is to say that if you, you um, are going to defer to an agency's, you know, view of its, of its own power simply because you assume that it has expertise, technical expertise, well, that's essentially going to let the fox guard the hen house. And it, it, it would seem odd, I think, and, and to... <laughs> To have um, you know the subject whom the law is meant to control deciding the the extent of the control. 
Okay, one other slightly different point that was raised in oral argument by Justice Liu. Um, you mentioned earlier that the insurance companies were concerned that a particular reading put forward by the insurance commissioner would render some surplusage, that one of the sections that we talked about, the mechanism by which the insurance commissioner could add new unfair practices to the, the statute, um, would be rendered mm-hmm. uh, surplus. But uh, sort of on the flip side of that, Quinn Justice Liu mentioned that if he cannot do this based on the statutory authority in the third section, we talked about the sort of general gap filler, make rules from time to time as needed. Um, what mm-hmm. what authority is then granted by that that third mm-hmm. section? Is that not rendered surplusage? Well, I don't think so. I mean, uh, Justice Liu's point is well taken in so far as if you apply the canons of construction here, you're going to have um, a very narrow interpretation of, I, I think, what what sort of authority section seven ninety point one oh or point one oh was was um, was conferring. But I construe section um, the section to to give a basic authorization for uh, the agency to enforce the legislature's chosen chosen regime. And so in, in looking at it in that, that light, I, I, my view on this is that the insurance commissioner has, has taken uh, trying to trying to twist this sort of basic authorization to enforce this regime into an open ended authority to decide fundamental questions of public policy. But I, I think there's a way to thread the needle. Um, I think that the most straightforward and, and logical way to interpret Section 790.10 is that it confers uh, basic authority on, on on the commissioner to promulgate regulations as are needed to to carry out the, the you know the basic functioning and enforcement of the act. And so, for example, there's there's um, provisions, as, as we've alluded to, for the commissioner to determine what is uh, you know if it would approach maybe a novel issue if he want if he sees some sort of an action happening that he thinks is unfair and deceptive, but it's not explicitly listed uh, by the legislature, there is a procedure for the, for the commissioner to actually go and, and initiate proceedings in, in order to, to um, get a determination ultimately from a judge uh, as to what is and what is not, uh, or whether it is or is not actually unfair. And Conceivably, I, I would say that you know, insofar as the agency wanted to set forward any sort of procedural requirements about how that wanted to go, so long as it wasn't conflicting with you know the Administrative Procedures Act or anything like that, it certainly could do so under this general authority because it's sort of necessary for. Um, and he, you know, for the, you know, the, to carry into fruition what it, what it is, uh, you know, it's, it's got a general conferral of power, for example, is, you know, to go to the, go through this procedure, but it necessarily can, um, promulgate regulations, um, un, under section, um, 790.10 that, that would define the, you know, the, the and you would even call that maybe gap filling authority to define the specific procedures as, as to how it would go insofar as it's consistent with the statute. So maybe, you know, for example, in so far as it's requiring people to, um, you know, submit reports to the agency or to the to the to the commissioner in this proceeding or anything, it, it could dictate the the form of those reports, perhaps um, the font or, or or the page limits or something like that. But that would be that would be my take. I, I think there's a there's a way to to thread the needle here. So essentially, that that section would give the authority for the commission to to carry out the statute, but this regulation, you'd argue, is a sort of changing the statute or adding to it. <laughs> Exactly. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I, again, I, I, I construe that 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 provision to be 
just a general authorization to carry into effect what the legislature has already told it to do. And that seems, I would, I would think that's a reasonable construction, especially given its, its place in the structure of the act. And, and you've got to entertain, I think, when, when thinking about this, sort of the contrary proposals, you know, you can either give it that, that narrow interpretation or you're going to give it such a broad interpretation that, that it definitely is going to render other provisions surplusage. And so, you know, I think applying the canons of construction here, or in any case where we're dealing with a, a question where the, the statute is, is silent, and we're dealing with these sort of issues, uh, you've got to ask, well, what is the most reasonable construction? And it's not always the most reasonable construction to just assume that the agency has carte blanche authority, you know, gap filling authority to do what it thinks is necessary. That that idea, I guess, is great in theory, but it means nothing because it, mean, it means that there's no standard governing the what the agency or the commissioner can do. And that that is, of course, our concern as, as representatives of small business. Perhaps one last one then, um, to the extent you'd like to forecast, how might you see the Supreme Court deciding this case? Well, you know, I don't necessarily have a problem forecasting, but I, I you know, it's always reading tea leaves, right? Sure. My thought process on this is that courts generally don't take cases to affirm. I'm a little anxious whenever I see a case that I think is very well reasoned and 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 very sound, and and, and I see the, the Supreme Court take that case. I usually think, well, it's probably not doing this to affirm. So that's my immediate thought. On the other hand, they also are more likely to take cases when a state agency or the commissioner asks them to than if an ordinary person were to ask them to do so. So it doesn't necessarily mean anything one way or the next. Um, But I will note that the NFIB was asking the Supreme Court of California to take up another case decided uh, around the same time. And, and the California Supreme Court chose not to do so, but it was raising the exact same issue. Um, the, the case I'm referring to was, was called Paint Care versus Mortensen. And so we filed a letter brief urging the Supreme Court to take up that case. We thought that that, that decision was wrongly decided because the Court of Appeal in that situation accepted a very broad theory of gap-filling authority of the sort that the commissioner um, invokes here and rejected the sort of um, construction based on the canons of the canons of construction we've been talking about that really we thought troubling and 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 it, it was the sort of result that the commissioner is hoping to see here and so when we we filed in support of seeing the court grant that our hope was that well they'll hopefully we'll take this case and and it would be an opportunity to clarify that there are principal limitations and cabining the authority of these agencies to determine and promulgate regulations. But they didn't take that case. They took this case, which we thought was rightly decided. And so I don't know what to make of that other than to, you know, I mean, certainly the fact that both of those cases came down within a very short time period of each other and applied the exactly, you know, Con- contradictory analysis uh, when it came to, comes to gap filling authority and the application of cans of construction. That certainly, I think, highlighted to the fa- to the court the fact that there was an important issue of administrative law that needed to be addressed. And so I don't know how much we can infer from the, the vehicle that they chose to address it. But I, I suppose somewhat pessimistically, I, I, I would think that the fact that they chose this specific vehicle um, maybe spells trouble for uh, those of us who, who would like to see, um, you know, cabined authority for these agencies. We'll find out soon enough as this case heard arguments this week. For now, Luke Wake, the NFIB Small Business Legal Center. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. Thank you. 
And with that, our program for November 4th, 2016 is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity one more time to tender sincere gratitude to both of my guests, Mr. Luke Wake of the NFIB Small Business Legal Center and Kirk Jenkins of Sedgwick LLP. I'd like to also thank you, our listener, for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Don't forget that CLE credit is available for your having listened. There should be a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. I have members of my production staff to thank here as well, including Helen Enriquez, Nicholas Sonnenberg, Dominic Fracasa, and of course, our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardow. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.